0: And Bonnie, how did you find my instructions for putting the mic together? Because I spent about an hour on putting that together. So if you could just validate me on how good my my instructions are as a producer, that would be really nice. Buck is is codependent. You'll get used to it. <laughs> I need to be needed. It was it was definitely colourful. Like it was <laughs> really. That's the top thing. The instructions on how to construct a mic need to be. You it made my, me want to click on it that's good see where my priorities are <laughs> made you want to click on it thanks bonnie so you can start the interview now fleur <laughs>
1: Thank you. Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers. Here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. This week's podcast is an interview with an old friend of mine, Bonnie Chung, who is the founder of Miso Tasty, a retail brand, which they've got all kinds of products now. Not just miso paste, but um, Japanese food sources, meal packs, all kinds of things. And um, she gives us a really detailed behind the scenes look of look at her business journey. So if you kind of think that being an independent food brand owner is a yeah, is an Instagrammable life, <laughs> you're in for a bit of a <laughs> she tells you really how it is. It's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. But she's learnt masses. She's got masses to say. There's some um pure old jokes, of course. Of course mixed in. And um also some food education
0: buckers. Some really good food education for me, yes.
1: Yes, we get buckers up to speed on some of the hipster ingredients that everyone's having for their lunch, so that you can have them too. Welcome, Bonnie, to the Real Work podcast, which is an extremely serious and deep investigation into the world of women's work okay it's not <laughs> it's not She's had a bonnie's had a really harsh meeting with Tesco all morning so i couldn't resist that i could just sense weakness like a shark smelling a drop of blood <laughs> in the water i couldn't help Aww. torturing you um it's fine just be yourself we, we make this up i haven't done any preparation we just chat about work and um, that's it can you move your screen so i can see your eyes at the moment i can just see your nostrils there we are yes <laughs> tell them um, tell us how the meeting with tesco's went this morning
2: oh i think we're just trying to see who blinks first now we're in renegotiation i'm just saying
1: oh. are you equipped are you equipped for that sort of stuff do you en- do you enjoy it or do you just find it stressful and annoying i used to find it stressful and annoying i have to say i like straight talk
2: yeah i find it all a bit unnecessary a lot of game playing and you realize it is sort of you can see that there's some politics going on as well so we're just trying to we'd rather just play it straight <laughs> so yeah so it's been a bit of a bit of a full-on morning but now you can relax probably actually not that unusual
1: <laughs> now you can relax you're amongst friends She's really
2: nervous <laughs> you're nervous of what i'm gonna say funny no no just sort of um i'm, I'm up for sharing up for sharing oh, the journey, so yeah no i'm, I'm excited
1: before we went live, we were talking about um, my lunch choices, which were, um, shall I tell you what I had? Go
2: on. It wasn't a pot egg,
1: was it? You know those? Uh, no. <laughs> I think it, was, it was one of those um, supermarket tall breads with some pasta sauce in it and a slice of leodama toasted with a lettuce on the side. What do you make of that, Bonnie is called you, on blood. Did you
2: also did you also um, <laughs> feed that to your daughter? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, like lunch she, for two.
0: Lunch for two. Oh shade. <laughs> sh- she's throwing shade on me. Was it pre-made pa- pre-made pasta sauce? Yeah it was, yeah. Oh fleur. It was a low point. <laughs>
1: Tasted really good. Oh my gosh, this is what this will make you really, really upset, Bonnie. It was Italian tomato like passata pasta sauce. And um, do you know what I put in it to liven it up a bit? That's some um, scratcha Asian chili sauce. So it was a fusion <laughs> with the Mexican, <laughs> Mexican, Asian, Italian fusion.
0: Wow. <laughs> that is the sound. <laughs> Of someone who is not <laughs> impressed. That was a scavenge. That is a
2: proper fridge scavenge, so isn't it? That's a proper scavenge. The, funny- <laughs> the reason this is funny,
1: Buck, is it's funny <laughs> The reason. No, that's when my fridge is fully stocked. <laughs> the reason it's um, funny torching Bonnie like this we've been friends a long time, is that she's a real foodie. I worked in the foodie food industry for 15 years, but I was never really a foodie. I was all about kind of brand and convenience and how things were made and all that kind of stuff. Bonnie's a true foodie, aren't you? How, when did you realize what a foodie you were, like how much you loved it? Let's go back
2: to mini Bonnie. Um, I guess I suppose I, I find the word foodie a bit,
0: bit cringe like these go, goor, days. You're
1: a you're, you're proper gourmand or gourmet, aren't you? You've got a really uh, refined palate and you really enjoy experimenting with flavors and, and you get really excited about, you know, restaurants with innovative chefs and all that kind of stuff.
2: Definitely. I mean, I'm, I've always been massively curious to try things. I always want to try new flavors, love traveling and, and trying, trying new cuisine, love this recreating I mean. at home. So I'm just really in, I'm always just always been really curious about how food is made. Um, A lot of my foodiness is driven by my general greediness. I I love eating, love flavors, love trying new things. And then, and then, so part of that is that I have a need to try and recreate it. Um, So I think it's sort of driven by, yeah, a love of food, really, just a genuine love of enjoying restaurants, trying recipes. Um, And out of that comes this sort of curiosity about how it's actually made. There you are. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that. I love feeding people as well. So I think that's also part of it. I love like trying new things on other people, making food for others and sharing food. That's a big part of it as well. I think if it was just sort of cooking in a restaurant for people I didn't know, it a lot of the passion isn't like it wouldn't be as strong for me. For me it's all about actually um making food that you then see how people react. And um, I mean, sometimes it's um, it's backfired on me. So once I worked in a restaurant where it was a um, an open kitchen, so you could see the customers eating your food, and that was actually I thought I'd love it, but it was really stressful because you're like, why isn't why is she pushing that piece away? Did you want? Why to, is that plate coming back? Did you want
1: to go and ask them? <laughs>
2: yeah. lady, hello. Yeah, that's the best part—the just... crunchy bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you've not eaten the bit that makes it all make sense um so yeah so that can be yeah so part of that is about sharing sharing the food as well so it's not about just creating it for me um and so you know with miso it's just been real it's been so fantastic because you know that people are also having a go themselves making the product themselves at home so it's sort of a real extension of of my love for making food and sharing with others.
1: Because, yes, because you started with one ingredient, miso, making the best miso possible that people could use Mm. in all different ways in their homes. And then you Mm. branched out into these sort of food kits, which are halfway between prepared and um, fresh so that they can add their own ingredients.
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: And um, the miso took an incredibly long amount of time, to get ready, didn't it? At at the time, I remember because I'm the opposite kind of entrepreneur. To you, I'm just not a patient person, and I'm I'm not so yeah. My palate's um destroyed in the 80s. You know, once the microwave was invented, unfortunately, my my palate took a basher <laughs> that it never quite recovered from the jacket <laughs> potato years, as we refer to them. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm all about like getting on the shelf, making it look beautiful. You know, getting. And I remember at the time just sort of saying, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And and the the development process that would normally take, yeah, you'd crack through in a few months. How long did it take you Mm. from kind of concept to getting that product on the shelf?
2: It took three years, um, which was no one expected that. I didn't expect that. And certainly when I got my investors involved, I promised them that there'll be something ready in about three months.
1: I probably told you that.
2: Yeah, I said someone, <laughs> some expert told me it would take me three months. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> yeah, so, it's all your fault.
2: <laughs> um, yeah so, so for three years, it was um, it was really, three it was long it was,
1: it was really years. painful,
2: really difficult. But I mean, it, it did fly by I, because I I really believed I'd get there in the end. I really believed that. I think if I had any doubt that that I wouldn't. I wouldn't finally make it um I would have given up but I really believed it every trial every next trial I really believed that would be the one and I think that kind of optimism is definitely something that I've kept
1: that's (laughs) lovely because I was going to say it's something that I associated with sort of when I was younger you know before I really understood how the world worked you know I was much more bl- I mean I'm not an optimistic person to be fair but when I was young what you're describing sort of like the energy of pushing through that situation and being like oh, I mm. think it'll be all right I think it I think it'll be all right come on I think it'll be okay let's do it you know the yeah
2: yeah yeah
1: you, you need so much energy that you have to be unencumbered don't you you have to be unencumbered yeah. if you have like kids or dependents or financial worries yeah. or those other things it just would be too hard
2: Definitely. And just no real understanding of risk, like every like risk felt exciting as a concept rather than um, a scary concept that might put you off something. At that stage, I just thought the risk was really exciting and fun and other people were were backing me. So it was sort of part of the journey. And I just thought that it would, you know, I definitely knew that there'd be a development period. I just never expected it to be quite so long.
1: You expected it to be three months if that's what I told you. <laughs>
2: yeah exactly. Oh, it's exactly convincing and, yeah and in the way when we actually launched i almost felt a bit lost because i thought i had been so long in development phase so long in like oh we're well you know we're about to launch we're about to launch we're about to launch so then when i actually launched i was like now what i, I you know i hadn't prepared to run the business <laughs> i've spent so much time focusing on just making the product exist um looking for customers setting up a website i just i've lost sort of perspective that actually you're setting this up to run (laughs) so uh, that was a bit of a bit of a shock really that's a bit
1: like childbirth when you're pregnant you just think oh this is quite hard (laughs) this is quite hard i can't wait for the baby to be born and then you know then it'll be all thing we should have probably done at the top of this podcast is talk about how we met because it's all very well us being chum chums but no one actually knows about the crossover i met you first when you arrived in soho house after i'd advertised for an intern that's right so what year would that have been when i was so i was running grasshopper i had no idea what i was doing i had so much work i didn't know what to do and someone said to me why don't you get an intern and i said what's that and they said, it's someone who works for free. And I went, <laughs> really? And they said, oh, yeah, they do it in America. <laughs> went, Great. And they just said, just do a job advert, but write intern on it, then you don't have to pay them. That's what it was like back then. And it's dreadful, isn't it? Isn't that just dreadful? That's just like admitting to some awful kind of misconduct. Just no. I, cr- I, I cringe think, when I, I think, think of I- that. I paid I you think quite I was soon, paid though. I. I think you did, did pay me.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I know that when you were doing the sales job <laughs> I paid you. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, you could probably sue me now for that. <laughs> it's it was in the night was it, in the two like 17 years ago. Or how many years ago? Uh,
2: it's probably about maybe 12 13, 14 years ago maybe. Yeah. Then, I remember before, um... we knew,
1: before we knew better and that, that <laughs> is not the way to treat young people. God.
2: No, I was just at that time. I was just looking for, looking to get, looking for something fun to do, something different. Because I, um, you know, I'd left, um, banking after only a year and a half, <laughs> after graduating. I just wanted to try something new, and it just sounded, sounded fun. And uh, I. It was been, probably the um... opposite of banking. <laughs> yeah, it was very uh, unstructured. Let's say. <laughs> <laughs> If you
1: imagine how unstructured my business approach is now, Buckers, it was like fourteen years before I became disorganised. <laughs> it was like spaghetti throwing against the wall, and um, yeah, we li- we had no idea. But there was no mentorship, there was no online communities, there was no downloadable guides, there was no. General Assembly, there was nothing, was there? It was just literally the blind leading the blind. Like the Wild West. It was, like in an industry that was just full of mustachioed, suited guys to be fair, there's a lot of them still about still uh, around yeah but
2: i think that was part of the appeal at the time for me because i just come out of something really quite dull um and i wanted a bit of an adventure and um i think i was doing a lot of catering cooking as well at the time you're starting starting to, to, to work in food and this actually grasshopper just sounded like a real mix of food and business and you you seemed really fun to work with. So I thought, let's do it. Like, what have I got to it lose? Was,
1: it was as well in, in, you know, I talk about like, you know, an intern thinking that as a person who worked for free and you know, those things don't, you know, they don't date what well. you just think, Oh my God, you know how, how awful. But in a way we just didn't know anybody. It was quite an innocent time in a way, mm. you know, in terms of the fact that my sister and I created the branding on the pot. I mean, how much work now goes in and how much thought goes yeah. into the packaging for yeah. your products before they go in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And you think how many faces, facings you're going to have, like where's it going to be on the shelf? Yeah. What's it going to say? How's it going to differentiate from the stuff in the category? We didn't think about any of those things. We didn't, we didn't know that it was a thing. It was so we had, in a way we had a lot of freedom, didn't we? In grasshopper to just sort of like try things
2: mm-hmm. And,
1: mm-hmm. and make, make mistakes and kind of so it was in a way we both kind of learn on the job with grasshopper
2: definitely and now compared to what we do now i can see that like in that era retailers were more forgiving as well they were sort of they you know that it was quite significant for them to back a small producer a startup whereas now there's quite there's so many of them that actually um you know the retailers actually Treat you much the same, I think. You know, kind of with with which much stricter ruling. So, yeah, I do. I think it wasn't an innocent time, but that was sort of part of the part of the fun.
1: When we got into Waitrose they just said, you know, there was no there was no resistance at all. They just said, oh, you know, this is what we're going to pay you, and it was quite a good price. This is what we're going to pay you. We're going to order two thousand at a time per flavor and um, we'll pay you after 30 days. How's that? We just went, yeah, okay. Yeah, great. So those kind of payment terms, buckers, are what, you know, into small independents now would dream of. If a supermarket buys a product 2,000 units at a time, so two, two, that's, you know, that's a whole pallet full, your transportation costs are low, that's a great, you know, that's a great first stop, it just doesn't happen now. You just get pulled back and forwards and
0: squeezed and squeezed. Did you say that you get paid 30 days after you provide the stuff? Yeah, how much...
1: Well, we did, though. That was a that great... That would
0: terrify me. Well, that's a
1: great deal. Bonnie,
2: what were your payment terms now with supermarkets? Um, it varies a lot, uh, retailer to retailer. Definitely, like, the big, the bigger ones are around like the 45 up to 60 days. Um, but uh, in the... Across the last year, um, things have changed a lot. That like the supermarkets are their payment terms have been scrutinised a lot during um, during the COVID year, where where um, they've actually been offering um, not just small producers but all, all producers much better terms. So at the moment, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Sainsbury's and um, Ocado have been particularly good at it. Um, so they can be as low as seven to ten days at the moment it has been for the last year. That's amazing. Yeah. It's been really, they've been really good in last year. Not all of them, but some of them have been really good in the last year just to support businesses and their cash flow, especially those that have got like really, like really long supply chains and the cost of that. So, um, I think that they've been, they've been acting really, really sensibly, but that might all change and go back to how things were, um, in the coming months.
1: Back, back in those days when we were working off a sofa in Shoreditch Mm. house and, um, eating the bread rolls that the rich media people left behind. Uh, I did actually do that. I Um, I wasn't actually the first person to be teaching you about business because you actually knew a lot more than I did because you'd grown up in a family of restaurateurs. Tell us about that.
2: I guess, um, yeah, I think because my, my parents ran restaurants, Starting something from scratch, m- m- running it, um, having teams, having ideas, managing money—those aspects you kind of were really familiar to me. Um, you know, we grew up around that. You know, we would always, you know, grew up working in my dad's restaurants, uh, working in the kitchen. And then when I was tall enough, I was allowed to work in the bar. And then I was working front of house and managing the till. So that was always just, you know, you you would really openly talk about money in the family, which I know isn't. isn't yeah, yeah, that's a big difference. Isn't usual. We would be like, oh, today we took 2000 or oh, today we only took 500. It's a Monday. It's quiet. You know, so those conversations were just normal in our in our household so making money creating ideas you know i will test a new new menu item at home and if it's good all right we'll put it on the menu tomorrow that kind of um that kind of creativity where you put things into action and then we see if it works is a sort of a, a mentality that is really familiar to me so when you sort of apply that into more of a like more formalized business setting or uh, and starting your own it's sort of there are loads of things that actually transferred really well, and I think yeah, I definitely have my my parents to thank for that because they they came as immigrants in you know when they were in the early twenties well my dad was actually nineteen when he moved here and, and um and and worked in restaurants were they married before they came uh they did they, meet they did yeah they did um, um and where did they before come from um, so my family are from hong kong um and um cantonese people moving to hong kong uh, it's moving to the uk the, in the 70s take takeaways you know, were set really up quite by common, actually people and that's from where? hong kong because of the uk and um a special relationship with hong kong it meant that there was that, that kind of immigration was quite standard at the time and everyone worked in the restaurants and so that's exactly what my parents did um, saving up money to buy their own house, saving up money to start their own restaurants. So, but you know, but by, by the time I was sort of five or six, my parents had you know were, were owning their own restaurants and starting to to build up teams and coming up with new ideas for different restaurants. So, yeah, I've always always sort of wanted to start something of my own because of that, but I never quite knew what it would be, and I actually didn't think it would be food <laughs> because I've seen how much. So the yeah. sacrifice they made to start their businesses, I always thought if I started my own, it wouldn't it wouldn't be in food. Um, but uh...
1: <laughs> here we go. One of the things we talk a lot about in in um, in real work is um, finding supporting women to find the right work. Or start the right business for them, and the business you describe your parents' restaurant business whether it's um, a sit down mm. restaurant or a takeaway restaurant, you have a really good idea of how mm. much money it's going to generate. So, you said oh, it was this much on Monday, we yeah. expect this much, and it makes yeah. money from a standing start. So, you've done the refit, you know, you've you, you've you have an idea of how much you've had to put in the front. But it starts making money when you, when you open it. And the business model mm. that you chose with Miso Tasty is completely different. So what, what that means, Buck, is basically is if you start a restaurant, you might need, you know, 10 grand or whatever to make the inside right. But then when you open the doors, you have a good idea of how much money that's going to start coming in the front door mm. straight away to pay you. With Bonnie's business, with the product business, like what I did... You need masses and masses of money in the front end to create the product, create the branding, create the packaging, get people to know what it is, pay people for you know to work on it until you get in the supermarkets. Then, you know, if you're lucky, well, Bonnie's took three years yeah. before it was even on sale.
0: I guess there's and just then, no guarantee.
1: No, and then and it might not be many of them. Most of them don't even get to any point of sale. And then when they are selling, whereas it a In a Chinese restaurant, yeah, you might make um, 3,000 quid on a Saturday night. You'll be, you know, selling a product, you'll make 400 pounds the first month, 600 pounds the second month. It's such a slow build-up, such a slow build-up. Did you know that when you started? Because I didn't know that. No No one explained that to me when I started Grasshopper. Did you know the difference?
2: I think I knew the difference, but I I wasn't very aware of the relevance of it at the time. I think all my focus was just to get it working and I guess I think the big difference is about you know the um uh is is about like the the cash flow so I think the um you know with with a business like ours with, with uh with the with, uh, where you sort of get funding at the front you have then like a lump of money that you have to then manage super super carefully yeah. with like a restaurant business like my parents they would start it with quite little money so they wouldn't actually invest that much in it and if anything they were sort of testing to see if it worked before they then invested to make the chairs nicer or or, or um upgraded the the curtains or something so they it would be much more um um i suppose more test and learn than 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 the so the branded businesses that i that i've started and, and 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 how are the and the sort of branded business that you see now there's a lot of like um heavy lifting at the start like set up costs before you then launch it into the world um so now when you see kind of like food trucks and food markets and street food stores it's much more in that model of like Low startup costs. Let's just test an yeah. idea. Whereas something like a branded business like ours, you're you're putting so much money into making sure the infrastructure is right, the branding, the product. There's a lot more upfront uh, to invest in before you can try and even sell 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 it.
1: Once you're in, once you've established yourself, Miso Tasty has um, got uh, miso paste selling well. The supermarkets like you. You've, you've proven that you're a good supplier then when you want to add on um noodle um Raymond packs or whatever those you know whatever you're thinking of you don't necessarily have to finish those before you pitch to the supermarket is that right now could you um, can you so could you go to the body and say hi sainsbury's i'm thinking of doing this are you interested
2: uh definitely i think it's um once you're in you have regular catch-ups with that buyer anyway in order to monitor your performance so within those performance meetings you always snuck in what's in my pipeline so so it's a constant conversation about i've got this product developing is this something that you might be interested in next meeting you're talking next meeting you're sort of showing them an update on that previous so you're always talking about stuff that we've got in the pipeline, and what they are looking for, and also when their windows are. So, you know, generally, m- most supermarkets would have two to three windows a year where they can let in new products. Uh, those dates change. So you have to really stay on top of that buyer to be like, when it, when is your next window? Um, because that window is not only a time for you to pitch a new product, but it's also an opportunity to remove you. So if you're not performing well, so those windows of time are ones that we calendarize and we really get to know that buyer to know exactly what her schedule is for the year. So so that we we protect our existing lines uh, by always having a case ready to show what growth we're showing. Um, But we also have all the new products up our sleeves. So yeah, I think once you're in, you can can use those regular catch-ups as a real opportunity to make sure that you can get more products in so you can get more brand space
1: and if they if you get the feeling that you started something they don't want then you can stop the development if you want
2: absolutely i think that's been that's been my biggest lesson from spending 3 years developing something without pitching it to a retailer um, was that i this the stakes were so high. it was so risky that we might have spent three years for nothing that now our development approach is completely upside down it's new we we develop all products in concept we we um invest a small amount in a three d visual of the product. Um, we create a basic kitchen version of that product and we we cook in that retailers kitchens and get them to try it get their feedback if you're getting a sense that they're going really like it but we're not really looking for products like this or we've already got products like this but actually much much cheaper or, or or you know with a different angle and there's not much room for you we just slow that development right down we obviously check with a couple of other retailers as well but we really try and listen to what that retailer is looking for and not over invest in, in, lines anymore. I think that's been our biggest lesson that we've sort of integrated into our but at culture. At the beginning,
1: mm. at the beginning, you didn't know no. that to be mm. fair. And you didn't know it would take three mm. years. Cause I said three months.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh God, oh, I'm going to be not going to sleep tonight <laughs> thinking that I put you through that. Um, so you, you didn't know that to be fair. And also the other thing is that no one really knew what miso paste was mm. And so if you'd have gone to pitch them and say, I want to make, you know, high quality restaurant quality miso paste that you
2: can eat, use at home, you probably would have got knocked back. Definitely. I think you have to give everyone context. So for example, um, to the Sainsbury's buyer, you know, I'd be I'd I'd be sort of saying, oh, you know, I'd be quite confident that she she she's probably been to Pratt before. She would have seen that they had miso soup on the menu and that people were eating it with sushi. Like you have to really give them context for for why your product um, is needed in their range. Whereas, say I'm pitching the um, the product to a uh, manufacturer trying to get them to help me make it it's a very different kind of pitch because they they may not be you know in an urban area where they're going into Pratt and seeing the miso in a context yeah they're most likely not to be they'll be up north somewhere on a trading estate they're not really aware of some of the food trends that that we're seeing in urban areas and they may not be as aware as some of the sort of the global global influences in in food culture here so you have to really bring that to life and I think that that is often you know um the yeah you know, you, that's going to be your first challenge when you're making a, a bit of a niche product getting the getting the um manufacturer bought into your idea once you've made it you obviously need to then pitch it to the buyer to get them to understand that you can commercialize it but your first hurdle is actually getting the manufacturer excited as well um because they're going to have to um support you in in, in other ways
1: well
0: because how does this all sound to you <laughs> it's a hard job don't you think it just sounds like there's so many moving plates and you've constantly got to be ahead of what the retailers want. And I'm just thinking from like from my point of view, I like working on stuff that I like. And if you've got an idea for something that you think, oh, this would be great, and maybe people don't know how great it is, mm. and then the retailer says, oh, actually, we're just not really interested in that. And then you just have to kill that process. That must be really difficult sometimes. It can be, but I think what you describe is definitely the way to start. Like if you're
2: going to create something, you have to create something that you love. That you and that's love. where that's definitely always a starting point, whether it's on trend, whether it's something they're looking for. I just sort of see it as like, it's just a matter of time. Mm. So you kind of put things on ice and then bring them back when, you, they're, thing, when they're on trend. So with Miso, it was something that I really, really love, but we were a bit early on the market. Um, now there's lots of other miso products out there, and um, you see miso in in recipes all the time. But at the time, we were quite pioneering, and and that sort of um, it w- had its own challenges. So I think I think the starting point is always create something that you really love, and then if it's sort of if it's timely, then fantastic. And I think mm. miso taste has definitely gone through that journey in terms of Japanese food generally. So you know when we first started. Japanese food was really just sushi people could understand sushi so Mm. we we, we positioned our product as an accompaniment to something that was trending um as people uh, over the last year with people staying at home we've really repositioned some of our marketing to really talk about home cooking this is about easy home cooking because that's what chimed with the times and um and you know a look would have it that the trend is really catching on in terms of fermented foods which our miso is and then also last year and this year with the japanese olympics is it going to happen is it not going to happen the supermarkets have gone hard on japanese marketing so yeah, in front that. of store yes yeah. front of store japanese uh, displays extra space for japanese food and even you know so we had loads of coverage last year when the olympics were meant to be and then this year it's meant well it's going to go ahead but without without you know international spectators but again they're putting huge japanese focus in their marketing so that's sort of just getting lucky on the trends in terms of getting japanese food on the market Mm -hmm. you know in the on people's radars so yeah, I think that's the right order. You have to make
0: stuff you love, and then sometimes you have to wait for the right moment. I was just thinking, Fleur, maybe we should ask Bonnie to just describe what miso is, just in case, just for anyone who doesn't, who hasn't caught on to what it is yet. Bonnie, what's miso paste?
1: <laughs> Buckers, hang on. You don't know what it is, do you, Buckers?
0: No, Buckers. When you it comes say for anyone,
1: <laughs> just in case. Yeah, just in case it's not a regular part of your home culinary repertoire, that's you, I've isn't it? I've had it
0: in itzu. It's but it comes crazy. in itsu It's liquid, isn't it? And in and before that, it's it doesn't start off life as a liquid, does it?
1: It's okay that you don't. Know it's okay. It <laughs> you are the majority
0: in this country. Don't worry, Bonnie. Yes, <laughs> Bonnie, help me.
2: So miso paste is a really, really tasty savory cooking paste from japan it's made from soybeans it's been fermented, so a bit like soy sauce and it's got really deep umami flavor um and it's really popular in japan as a miso soup but also as a marinade um you can add it to um, your stock um it's a really deep flavor uh, that you can add to any cooking, not just Japanese food, but, um, you can, I add miso paste to my mashed potato when I roast vegetables. It's an instant flavor enhancer. That's totally natural. Um, it's got its origins in, in Japan, but you can also try uh, fermented soybeans or versions of miso across Asian cooking. So, uh, soy sauce is a very similar process of making, uh, gochujang, sriracha sauces, um, hoisin sauce, all these sauces actually have a fermented soy base, so but they've got different seasonings to to uh, to, to to brighten them up. But the base is miso. So um, yeah, I just got so excited when I discovered it because then the more you learn about miso, there's all these different types. It's a bit like cheese or wine. There's like depending on how long you fermented or aged it for, you get different colours, different flavours, um, different textures. So if you're a lover of cheese and wine and you haven't discovered miso, you have to you have to check Check it out because I think it delivers such satisfying flavors and very sophisticated balances um, of flavors when you add it to your cooking. Wow, mind
0: blown!
1: Buckers, maybe we should um, trim that bit and let Bonnie use that. Just I mean, that was just a perfect impassioned description. You
0: just know so much. Yeah, you know so much about me, so Bonnie, (laughs) and you know nothing. (laughs) me so informed now oh dear dear.
1: (laughs) that's not going in you're not allowed to use that you're not allowed to use that on the front bit as the introduction (laughs) no that's
0: not going in (laughs) i'm gonna mute myself now okay
1: pull yourself together going back Going back to um, before you were um, forced to give emotional labor, explaining Miso to um, Buckers, the, um, the the situation you describe about being a pioneer is um, this thing about sort of being first to market. And it's really interesting because that was a real thing for us with grasshopper. We were also pioneers. We were the first people to put porridge and milk powder and dried fruit in a pot so that you can eat it on the go by pouring, pouring hot water on it, right? So we were category creating, like mm. kind of you were in a way. Mm. And um, I just remember at the time, because of the Dragon's Den and rubbish like that I've been on the telly a lot, and that was kind of all people knew about starting businesses. Everyone, that was what everyone was excited about, that we'd sort of thought of something new. Mm. It's completely new. That's great. It's completely new. Yeah, like an invention, And I yeah. thought... Yeah, I thought that was just a really great thing. And that was kind of in a way why it was um, like why it might work. Mm, mm. And then when other companies started making it, we felt a lot of dread and we felt Mm. quite sort of overwhelmed by that. Yeah. But actually, what we know now is that being first to market isn't a great place to be. And you generally generally go under the bus. It's um, it's hard to educate um, customers. This is which is what we're saying, you know, a a product when you have to if you if you have to when you said most people in the UK don't know what miso Mm. is, you have to take them on that journey of what is miso? What does it look like? What does it smell like? How do you buy it? How long does it last? Mm. Is it vegetarian? How do you cook Mm. with it? Why is it that expensive? Mm. You know, what if I don't like it? You have to take them. You have to tick off Mm. all of those concerns, whereas if it's a different type of cornflakes all different type of ketchup everyone knows what cornflakes and ketchup mm. are and so so actually that novelty that we got so excited about that's a huge it's actually a huge barrier isn't it you don't really want to be first to market do you?
2: not always I think if you can in terms of being able to explain your product and its value it's so much easier to say it's like this but better so at least yeah, yeah. as a reference point um and if that thing that you're referencing is something that actually has been quite sort of dissatisfying for a lot of people people will be like right I'm 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 ready to listen I want to know what you're doing to solve that problem but if you're starting like as we did with miso we were not solving um an existing problem <laughs> so it wasn't like oh people have been having rubbish miso for years and and here's a better one it was that this is something that they didn't know that they needed <laughs> They didn't know that they really want and that's when like you need a lot of marketing push to to, to get that in front of people um for people and to you did. register
1: and mm. you did do that you got investment and you pushed hard and you had a really high quality product that people come back to but also as you say you had those lucky turns of events mm. you know in trends you mm. know you yeah. you you managed you know that that happened so it's kind of lots of things i remember when prep started doing it you're in about year two or three when Pret started making Misto paste in
2: sachets. Mm, mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, that yeah. was quite stressful, wasn't it? It was because we were just we just felt we spent so long developing yeah. it, and then out of the blue, it just sort of dropped yeah. in. And we were, and I remember yeah. having that
1: conversation at the time, saying, "I think it's better. It's better that there's more because yours is better than theirs. Mm, mm, so it's good that Pret are doing the work of getting people used to buying it, yeah. and you can just make." One that's better, it's a better but it's, one, it's, yeah, yeah. It's quite harassing. Yeah. The other thing about this product is that it don't you have to do you have to put it in jars or bury it or something? It's like some really. Where did long- you go and learn how to make it? How do you make the stuff?
2: So um so the miso is made from soybeans. it's uh, been fermented for at least two years, so so there we are yeah. that's
1: what I'm talking about. look, but bo- Buckus's eyebrows have shot off the top of her head.
2: <laughs> yeah it takes <laughs> two years It takes two years to make <laughs> it to make it. So can you imagine if you make you mess up your bat, you have to start all over again. So it is uh, very labor intensive and the the craft of making it is quite specialist, uh, which is why it took us so long to. To, to get it made um but then that also became kind of our defense um you know if someone else wanted to try and replicate what we did we knew that the barriers you know were quite high for them to 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 to, to access that they would need quite a lot of money more time and also someone who was passionate enough to to do it and i guess that's probably probably why the investors that we have and the suppliers that we have that have stayed committed to, to, to me and Misa Tacey is probably because, and they tell me it's because they knew I wasn't going to give up. (laughs) So they recognised that I was just, you know, super hardworking and was just going to keep going until I was able to make it. And that was sort of the reason why they invested and the reason why they were willing to make it for me. Um, I was on a mission, (laughs) Tell us the
1: um, shops that it's sold in now. like which.
2: So in over 4,000 stores globally. So we're, e- we're in the UK and Australia, but we're currently looking at some more European options as well. Um, but, yeah, in the UK, uh, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado, Whole Foods, all the, all the sort of the major supermarkets.
1: And how many investors do you have?
2: Oh, I've got... 12, twelve direct investors that sort of were at the start, and then after that, I've got twelve crowdfunded investors. Wow, it's a lot of people. What do you
1: think of that? You could buy some shares in it. Of course. <laughs> if you get if you get the umami bug and you just love that crazy savory flavor, I'll come on you could board. buy shares in it. Yeah, you are
0: <laughs> I'm very well educated in miso now.
1: But you are the great thing about crowdfunding is that you. People can invest really small amounts, of money hundred quid. Yeah. So um, there's you get all kinds of people are able to sort of chime in and be in touch with you mm. as in, as small investors. I lo- I loved crowding. I think it's a great democratic process. I really I really
2: enjoyed it. You've enjoyed it as well, haven't you? It's had its ups and downs. I'd say that the the actual idea of having crowdfund investors is brilliant because yeah, as you said, it's a great process where you know, that, you know, a, a fan or a customer could be part of your business. And I think that's really great to, 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 to be able to um, find investors in that way. Um, because when you're sort of trying to find like an angel investor or something, you need to be moving in certain circles and being connected to certain people yeah. to find the right people. And that's, you know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really democratic process being able to just pitch online um or a or, or pitch through through crowdfunding i think it's brilliant i think it's hard when when you're having a bad couple of months so say it's like quite quiet and and you but you know you've got plans to 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 to, to fix things and and the next couple of months you've got some real ideas of what you're going to do to turn things around in those moments is when you you're going to get loads of questions Um, and you need to be ready for that. Um, so that's, that's sometimes quite difficult. So I think in the early days when I wasn't ready for those questions, I really struggled. It's like you're getting bombarded. Yeah. But then now I can anticipate them. So now I know how to position it and be ready to explain what we're doing about it, you know? So I think that that's been a big learning experience. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think it's, um, you know, hopefully one day when we sell the business, we'll be able to give everyone, you know, a good thank you in return for, for them when supporting. Are you gonna be a,
1: when are you going to sell it, Bon? Oh, I've been telling know. you to sell it for, for a long
2: time. <laughs>
1: Come on, why don't you just sell it? You're getting
2: the paper. You're getting the paper. <laughs> I like, think you're amazing. No, I, mean, I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard to know. I think because, as I said earlier, I'm an optimist, I always think the next big thing is just around the corner. It never feels like I'm at the end of the journey. It always feels like I'm at the start of the next chapter. So I think well, that.
1: We'll be interviewing you when you're an old lady in a retirement <laughs> community going, it never feels like it's the end of the journey with your, with your walking frame.
2: Yeah, sitting by me. So that's. And I'll be saying, me I think, Bonnie, I think it's time to sell <laughs>
1: that business of yours
2: yeah I think they'll be they'll be the right moment I think when you know mm. you know
1: maybe it'll be one of those things yeah, yeah. But but um, that's also a question of timing yeah isn't it like there's a lot of artistry in that you know knowing when the right time is yeah
2: yeah and also you know um find the right path yeah find the right buyer as well I think it's important when you've when you've created something um you know because I, I think I personally would prefer to stay part of it even with it sort of under a bigger wow, ownership you
1: really love it Bonnie I always forget how much you love it it's lovely to hear yeah, that it's good to yeah hear I don't that. think sometimes I, think, I worry about how hard you uh, work and then just, I just think well,
2: I have to remember that you do actually love it though I think it would be really hard to let go of the stuff that I really enjoy the creative side the um you know the development of the products i you know there'll be there'll be a lot of things that i wouldn't want to let go so i think definitely you know if we found the right buyer one day who could help the business go you know go even quicker grow even faster i'd love to stay a part of that i think because it's it's a part of me but yeah that's today's answer we'll see um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, on another day, it's like <laughs> oh, no. the um, and your face is on the packaging now. That was so funny when that happened uh, in the supermarket.
2: Yeah, who persuaded you to do that? Because you're quite shy. You don't like the up the front stuff. Yeah, basically anyone who's in who's sort of clever on brands have always said get yourself on there because it's the key differentiator between you and any other sort of Asian food product. Because some of the other competitors in our space look a bit corporate i suppose compared to us we're a bit more kind of we, we we come across for our packaging to be a bit more so friendly and small so so the idea is to sort of really embrace the angle that we are personable uh the face behind the brand um to really help differentiate us on shelf and i think you know as food trends go like knowing where you're where your products come from where your ingredients come from who's made it the story behind it it is sort of in uh, in line with that trend as well that people are becoming more and more interested to know how their products are made and and who buy so yeah so that was um not an easy decision because I I I prefer to I prefer to be behind the scenes definitely you're not a glory
1: seeker like I was I was just all about the the celebration the collaboration the yeah, when you said earlier about how when you get investment, you get a large amount of money in the front end that you have to carefully protect. Yeah, I missed the memo on that one, unfortunately, which is why grasshopper doesn't exist, sadly, and that miso-tasty does. I say to a lot of people, you know, you're really compelling in the way that you're running this and you're getting so many things right. It's it's great to watch. And it's been lovely just to hear you um, show how much you love it. And, and it's... Yeah, it's reassuring because you do work really hard, and um, so the fact that you're doing something that you love, it gives you know gives me great reassurance. Thank you for being our guest on the podcast. If people want to get um, get their nose in some meso and get mesoed up, and um, what um, what would your be recommendation? Start with a jar. Start with a kit. What's your top tip?
2: I'd say start with a kit if you've never tried it before, if you've never tried meter before. So that's, you know, we have meal kits. So we've got um, ramen, Udon, katsu curry. You know, you can try. You can try it with a lot of support from Miso Tasty. So we've given you all the ingredients. Everything's measured out. You can't go wrong. And try and see if you love if you love the flavour as much as we do. And then if once you want to get confident, I would then probably start trying some of the um, the jarred paste or the tubes of sauces. Those are all like really quick and easy ways for you to try it. Good.
1: Are you going to have a go, Buckers? Are you going to have a try of some miso paste? Try cooking
0: with it if bonnie says you can't go wrong then <laughs> i will go and buy a kit but you can do tofu you can I do could, um, miso yeah, tofu i could put miso on the tofu yeah. does it yeah, have you to can. does it have to do you have to put it into soak uh you can marinate it a marinate. little bit yeah yeah our marinade.
1: thank you so much bonnie i know this isn't it's my idea of a good time chatting to you like this but i know it's not Aww. your favorite thing and no that, it's nice um, to talk to you it's really 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 nice a great to reflect
2: pleasure on the good times <laughs>
1: thanks for joining us Bye bye you're welcome thank you bye that's the end of this week's episode of the real work podcast if you want more from me before the next episode or you'd like to learn more about real work you can find me on instagram and youtube where i share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's real work, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how. <laughs> and tell people about it. It all helps. Thank you for being here. See you next time. Cool, well, that was a good one. I really feel like um, I feel like I'm really finding my stride with this podcast. I've had such good feedback; it's been amazing, and people have been leaving such terrific reviews on iTunes. Did I tell you it got to number fourteen in the chart? It, yeah, the really entrepreneurs yes. month. number fourteen. So I can't believe good. it! Like one week in. Thank you so much. I mean, I really. It's it's so much to do with you know your support that we did there. How, you're doing one, aren't you? A comedy one. How how's
0: that going? Your com your comedy one. Who are you doing it with? Oh yeah. Um... I'm doing comedy podcasts with an old friend of mine from back in the radio days. And we actually, we our launch day coincided with the Real Work podcast launch day. So we launched at the same time. Oh, that's good. Yeah. How's it going? Do people like it? Yeah, we're getting really good, really good feedback. And we actually got to, um, we got to number one in the stand up comedy podcast charts in UK. Which oh. we weren't really weren't expecting, but you know we're we are number one. super super pleased in with it in the first yeah. week. Yeah, but number fourteen still amazing, Fleur. Re- like really amazing.
1: It is. It is. We're, we're we're very. I'm very pleased for you.
0: Thank you. Um, do you think it will be okay for me to play my uh my advert now? Of course yeah just pop it on if you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore where the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core then you know who to call producer buckers she knows just what to do producer buckers To make your podcast dreams come true She used to work in radio Where she was Padio And dab-handed audio Find Producer Buckers on Instagram At Decibel underscore creative Or click the link in the show notes Come on everyone Producer Buckers If you want to hire the best Producer Buckers Just put it to the test Producer Buckers Just press record And she does the rest juice up Parker.